I'm Missy Bradley. I am the head of sales and marketing and one of the co-founders of Ripple. And I am proud to work in cannabis to have a little bit of a place in history for helping to reduce the stigma and introduce more people to the plant. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Very excited today to be joined by Missy Bradley, who is the one of the co-founders and the head of sales and marketing at Ripple. Actually, Missy and I were connected through our mutual investor, Maddox, and we sat down virtually and got to know each other a little bit. And we've been meaning to go and grab a cocktail, and I feel like the year's just gotten away from us, Missy. But how are you? I am all right. How are you doing, Carson? I am great. It looks like you're in a phone booth somewhere. I am. I am currently in one of our facilities in Commerce City, Colorado. Commerce City. I'm sitting in Denver, and, and it's actually like, I feel like this is kind of our first real week, re- whoa, first real week of summer. Yes, it has gotten hot finally after all of the, the crazy storms and hail. I see blue sky out out of my cell window. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have a lot on the docket that I want to talk about today, but to get us started, can you can you talk to us about how you decided to help co-found Ripple and why you wanted to go into the industry? Absolutely. I was a harder sell, I think, maybe than most. It happened to be around 2014, and one of my childhood friends had the original idea for our company. Uh, He and my other co-founder were working on ideas for the business. They were living out in New York. I happened to be living in Colorado. So my childhood friend, Justin, had approached me about helping them get the business set up here in Colorado. And I initially said no. I never really used cannabis all that much. Uh, The couple of times that I had smoked was probably with Justin uh, and never really found a place for it in my life. So I didn't know what trajectory that would put me on. And I was kind of scared to give up the career that I had built up to that point for this industry that I knew nothing about. And that was still in its infancy in the recreational market here in Colorado. Um, after sitting down with Justin and Jeremy and seeing the legitimate business plan that they had put together and recognizing that the product that we would be making would be something that hadn't yet been done and could help people like me. I was a young mother at the time. I really thought long and hard about it and eventually came on board part-time to start and then full-time in 2015. And Missy, what were you doing prior to this? I know you mentioned you didn't want it. You were nervous about what career trajectory it would put you on and you had been working. What were you doing leading up to this? So I had a former life as a journalist. I had gone back to school to get my master's in journalism, got out of school and had an internship at a magazine that I adored, which ended up turning into a job at a magazine that I adored moved out to Colorado with my husband uh, and ended up working for a nonprofit uh, that was in the climate space. 
and we were educating people about climate change and things that they could do. It felt like a more professional career track than what was available to people in cannabis at the time. So you, it's 2014, you're going part-time, and then it's 2015, and you go all in full-time. I'm assuming you move your whole family to Colorado? We were already here. So my husband had gotten a job in Colorado out from, we moved out from San Francisco. We hadn't been here all that long yet, maybe a year, almost two. And yeah, I mean, it, it was just like flipping a switch. And the good part about it was that we were all learning together, both my co-founders and myself and the industry. Recreational cannabis was still very much in its infancy, like I said, and we were the first marijuana-infused products license granted in Commerce City. So this, the city, county, state, everybody was kind of working alongside of us to figure out how, how we got this up and running, what we were supposed to do, what forms we might need to fill out that weren't available previously. And I think that helped because it wasn't like I was stepping into an arena where everybody else knew everything about what was happening and I knew nothing. So there wasn't really, there was a learning curve, but we were all on the same curve. And could you talk to us a little bit about the original, I know you've come out with a lot of products over time, but the original idea for the business and sort of like how you launched, talk, talk to us about that. The original business was around microdosed tea products. Our original product and the original business was Stillwater Tea. And we had microdosed organic loose leaf teas that were two and a half milligrams of THC available in a mint, green, and black variety. They were meant to relax, not to intoxicate. And what I remember most from those early days was the pushback that I got when bringing these products into dispensaries. The, it was always around the price per milligram being too high. So there was, that tended to be the number one objection and followed by this won't get people high and trying to convince buyers and dispensaries that there was a, there was room for a product that didn't get people high for a product that allowed people to use THC functionally and not just to get blasted. It was, it really didn't exist then. Kiva hadn't come online yet. There, that dose in Colorado, two and a half milligrams didn't exist. So that coupled with the fact that the processing that we had done to render the THC water soluble in order to make a tea that didn't have an oil slick sitting on top of it was sort of new and novel. There were a lot of educational components to those early sales and the shops that did buy in in those early days are still very much some of our best partners for the products that we have now in Colorado. So you I'm assuming you were the you were the one going out and actually doing the sales like in the early days was it quite literally you Justin and Jeremy and like how did you divide and conquer who was focused on what? It absolutely was the three of us. And then very soon, not even very soon after, before we had received our license, we brought in somebody who I had worked with in my previous life at the nonprofit, also a Carson. Yeah, I, I've met her. Yeah, I've met her. Yes. And she, we brought her on originally as, as a compliance manager, I think was the title that we had given her. But she ended up leading marketing and events uh, and it was instrumental to the early growth of the business. And then our head of R&D, Keith Wolfel, 
who had been an advisor in the early days before we were up and running, he didn't even move out from New Jersey. He started doing a commute from New Jersey because his wife and young girls were still out in New Jersey. He had been at Mars Candy Company for over 20 years, and he had been following our journey as Justin would send out investor updates and let everybody know what was going on. And he said, hey, I'd love to come check out what you're doing. So we brought him out for a weekend, convinced him to join us. And so Justin, Jeremy, Carson, Keith, and myself, we were the team. And we kind of divided and conquered based on who was available for what, depending on the day. Carson and I would be in the back. At the time, we had a manual process for rendering the THC water soluble. It was all very much, we would sort of make make crepes. It was was a very handsy process. Uh, And we had to dry them out and then we had to grind them by hand. Uh, We were working the filling machines. We were packing. We were delivering shipments ourselves. So in a lot of ways, it was really helpful for understanding what sort of business it was that we're building and and bringing new people in to follow on. But yeah, that first summer, so we, we were live with product in June of 2016. And from the majority of that summer, it was that core team manufacturing, filling, shipping. That's funny because we actually launched Vanks in May of 2016, you know, and so it's like I always think about that summer and all the uh, same thing. It was about a team of five. And I do think that there's something to be said for like we at Vanks didn't raise money until 2018. So we were very bootstrapped, which obviously we didn't have like as many costs associated as you guys did. But like there's something to be said for like literally learning every single piece of the business versus people that I know who got a couple million dollars out of the gate and built a team of 25 and sort of sat up here versus down there. Today, obviously your business is much bigger. Do you find that there's times where it's like very beneficial for you to be able to say, no, this is exactly how this works because I did this job all throughout the summer? Yeah. I mean, it has changed dramatically since those early days, both the the manufacturing floor and the process. However, it is a fantastic foundation for anybody to have. So yes, it's super helpful for me to understand exactly what goes into production, but also we've developed a program when we onboard any new employee, they don't necessarily shadow, but they get to meet with everybody who does every sort of job in that first month of employment so that they understand who is point for what. And then that person gets to tell them exactly what it is that they're doing. So it's also really great if something comes up, you know who to go to. If you have questions about anything, you know who to go to, but also you understand the breadth of what everybody is going through every day. So at the end of the summer of 2016, you had product, you're starting to, to, to sell the product. Can you walk us through how the next year, the 2017 year, like your really first year, like what goes down that year as you're Clearly it ended up working, but I'm always curious to hear like nothing ever goes according to plan. So what was 2017 like? Uh, Well, if we go back to 2016, because just in those first six months, uh, we really were set on a different trajectory than where we had started. Uh, So Jeremy and I were doing all of our in-store vendor days that first summer. So we were going out to the new accounts who had picked up our tea products and we were sitting at a desk or a table for two hours 
talking to anybody and everybody who would listen to us about our new product, Stillwater Tea, meant to relax, not intoxicate. And so many of the things that we heard from potential consumers were either about not drinking tea or that dose not being a dose for them. And it would be too expensive to put four tea sticks into one cup of tea. Because at the time, pre-tax, a tin of Stillwater tea, which would have had eight sticks, two and a half milligrams, I believe that was it, 20, 20 milligrams of THC, retailing for around $26. So you're out of a dispensary for over $30 for 20 milligrams of THC. So it was a hard sell for some people. Uh, so I don't drink tea and not my dose. We had been kicking around the idea for a while as a joke that we had made this form of water-soluble THC, which happened to be a powder that we then added to the loose leaf tea. Why not just sell that on its own? And then people could make whatever they wanted with it. And it really was a joke in the early days because we thought it was so funny that you could just have this sort of salt shaker of white powder and you could dose your food, dose your drinks. And after going through the you know, hours and hours of consumer potential consumer feedback, we really started to think harder about it and it became less of a joke. And we also uh, started looking at the tea product and kicking, we started kicking around ideas about making a higher dose version of the tea. We still found the microdose option very sort of fundamental to the brand and what we were doing, but we wanted to offer people something that would meet them where they were in that day and age. And it's still very much a 10 milligram market. But So in November of 2016, we ended up launching Whitewater, which was a 10 milligram version of the very same teas and the original Ripple powders. So that was water-soluble THC on its own. We had an indica and a sativa option they were both five milligrams of THC. And then we followed on beginning of 2017 with our one-to-one -one CBD option, which is still a SKU that is available today. Wow. And how did the market respond to that in November of 2016? It was a very different sell-in than the tea had been. <laughs> the Ripple products quickly took off and became the best-selling beverage in Colorado because dissolvables didn't have a category. They still don't but it was seen more as a beverage enhancer and there really isn't there still really isn't a great option for shipping heavy beverages around so as much as the beverage category is ticking up it's, it's transport on those is still difficult uh, especially if you need refrigeration i'm sure the margins on that is just i'm sure yeah the, i mean the it's so hard so, so hard. having a powdered dry product made it super easy, efficient. And yeah, it, it was granted, we'd only been in market for six months before then five months, but it took off in a way that we didn't anticipate, especially being that we had built the company on a different product. And yep, and the and the brand and the lifestyle that we were initially targeting changed a little bit in those days. And so as you as you were experiencing all this growth, 
how did you go, who did you hire next? How did you go about it? So the next couple of hires were heavily focused in manufacturing. Uh, two of them we still have today. So floor leads, machine operators, and then I think a couple of front of house, but very much manufacturing focused still. Uh, I ended up having, so myself and Carson became a marketing team of two. We quickly hired on another marketing manager so that we sort of had our core events team because at the time, and I would say even still today, it was very much a grassroots operation. You have to go out to the events, you have to meet the people, you have to get to know the other players in the industry. And so we were a roadshow and it was a, it was a small team uh, quickly followed on by a couple of salespeople so that we didn't have to do it all ourselves anymore. And it remained a pretty small team, I would say through 2017. Talk to me about uh, investing and investors. What I know you mentioned earlier in the early in the conversation that you were sending investor updates. So what kind of rounds did you do? Did you start with friends and family? And and just talk to me about the early days of investors and how you went about funding this out of the gate. Sure. I mean, this is very much Justin's operation in terms of Justin as CEO. He is the investor guru. Uh, Yes, the early round friends and family. And thankfully, you know, that, that lasted us for quite some time. We've always kind of spent money as if it were our own because we see it as being our own. And we are only trying to do what we can do within our means. The early round, so after the seed round, every other round was sort of built on expansion opportunities, things that we wanted to do here in Colorado, uh, expanding to other states, expanding into CBD, which we have since mostly pulled back from because of lack of regulation and ability to do anything at all worthwhile in that space. But all of the rounds since, so a lot of our early investors invested in following rounds as well. And, you know, you understand what it's like to get capital in this market. It's, it is hard and you also want to make sure that it's coming in from people who understand and respect the business and respect what you have built in a way that they want to offer support, not to change. And I think that can be really hard with some investors. And thankfully, we don't deal with this, but I've heard from other people and other businesses that they have, you know, sort of heavy hands on their business uh, from one investor type or another and who want to change, fundamentally change the business. And thankfully we haven't had any of that. So it's mostly friends, family, high net worth and people who believe in the technology and the capabilities that we have built. And you mentioned that you, some of the rounds were going towards going into new markets. What Talk to us about what other markets you've gone into and the process of taking a product to a new market. I know there's a lot of folks out there listening that maybe have a single state operation or a brand that's 
starting to pick up traction in one state and are thinking about, do I want to stay in this one state or do I want to start expanding? Like, how did you guys decide to go into new markets and how did you go about it? We spent, I think, the better part of a year looking at what the regulatory environments looked like in other states. We wanted to find something that was sort of similar to Colorado in that they had strict guidelines to follow. We we find we operate really well in heavily regulated environments. Tell us what we can and can't do and we will do it. And Justin and I both grew up in Michigan and Michigan had a framework that was somewhat similar to what we were doing in Colorado. And we had friends and family there who could help in the early days get things set up. We understood the lay of the land. We understood the market to an extent. So we opened in Michigan. Uh, We spent the better part of a year building out our own facility and hiring our own team, making sure manufacturing was set up, getting everything licensed. We wanted to do it ourselves because our process is both uh, very technical and something that we, it's proprietary and being in the space that we're in patenting around the process is difficult. And we have, we have some patents on some of the sort of extraneous elements, uh, but we can't patent what's actually happening with the THC. So we like to hold the process as close to the team as possible. And so you know, better part of a year getting things set up. We launched in the Michigan market in March of 22. Is that possible? I believe it is last year. And that was when the Michigan market was just on this upward trajectory. Yeah, it was roaring last year. Michigan was our biggest market last year. Most jobs in Missouri last year, which no surprise, I'm sure you hired a lot of people. So then you would have seen months after that, it yeah, then tanked. It tanked. <laughs> the bottom fell out. <laughs> and we were like, what happened? All these people just got hired and now they've all been fired. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, all of these projections of what that market could do being bigger than Colorado. And, you know, we, we knew what we had done here and the process we had here. And, you know, we had basically been able to lift everything and plant it there. And we both had a med and a rec license, something that we don't have in Colorado. And so we were sort of left scrambling, trying to figure out what we were supposed to do with that market. And we had to furlough the staff and we ended up finding a licensing partner who wanted to take on the business and sell the products and take on the staff. And that was amazing. So we were really excited about that. And then the Michigan thank market. Thank God, honestly. Thank God. And then the Michigan market never really picked back up again picked in a way again. that was or would have been meaningful for us and our products. This industry is so hard. Like, what other industry do you spend all this time going into the market? getting the facility set up, hiring the team, having a boom, and then having it just like die and never come back. I mean, right. we're in the same boat of like, we got a salesperson, you know, like all the things and it was great. And then it was not great. And then the amount of capital that you have to invest for it to be great, to have the right launch. And then it just goes away. Waste. I mean, like, I, I hate to be negative about it, but in my experience, sometimes I look back and I'm like, 
that was great for six months, but the amount of time and energy that we spent on it leading up, oh, and then to have a bunch of our customers basically go under and not be able to pay their bills, like kind of a waste of time. But it's also like, how in the world would either of us have known that? Oh, we couldn't have. I mean, all signs pointed to it was going to continue to climb. Yeah, yeah, I know. What are some of the other challenges? Because like, that's a perfect example for people that are listening that are not in this industry of just like, basically devastation. I mean, there's there's not much worse that can that you can have happen to you and your business. You gear up, you launch, things are going great, and then it's just not, and it's not in your control. That's one example of the many challenges that we face on the day-to-day in this industry. Um, like, Missy, what are some of the other challenges that you're just like, no other industry experiences this? Oh, man. Um, let's start with marketing because that's where I've spent most of my time yes. the past Please. seven years. You know, in Colorado, the, the bill was written, regulate as alcohol, regulate like alcohol. We are in no ways regulated like alcohol. There is no sampling opportunity available anywhere. You cannot market, even marketing to 21 plus crowds is difficult. So if you're looking at print publications, if you're looking at programmatic, you're just sort of lumped in with any other cannabis brand. You know, you're not able to target the lifestyles that you're looking for. You're not able to reach people at events in the way that any other consumer packaged good can or alcohol. You know, we, I like to say famously within these walls in Commerce City, we attended the Denver Wedding Expo years ago. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. we, our banner was something around, you know, the hangover free alternative. And we were pitching Stillwater Tea as an option for people's weddings where they could have a tea bar, or, you know, you could offer people nightcaps, whatever it is, but just something fun that people could do at their weddings. And we had brought in these tiny mini cupcakes from a bakery down the street. We had this beautiful setup that our PR team had helped us get set up. And it was a two-day event. I guess the first night, somebody called the state or some authority and said that we were handing out dosed cupcakes and that they got sick. And uh, two undercover police officers showed up the next day to our booth. And they were very easy to spot because one of them had a phone in his pocket and with the camera pointing out and just like these big domineering dudes. And he told us he was gonna have to shut us down, said that we had product. I had to like rip thing. We had empty packets. I had to rip things open. He, they took cupcakes, which I'm sure they just ate and didn't test. Right, right, All right, along right, right. Way of saying we were doing nothing wrong. We were there just like any other party who was exhibiting. Meanwhile, there was an alcohol vendor directly across from our booth that was serving alcohol, giving people giving out shots of tequila, glasses of alcohol. There was another one behind us. And there were multiple food vendors. So if this person really got sick, they could have ingested any number of things. We didn't get sick from the cupcakes that we ate. And there are people handing out alcohol. And they came down on us like, you know, I felt like we could have lost our license. Like it, it felt like it was that serious. And the licensing authority in Commerce City, I had gone over 
I think maybe to drop off a check the following week or two after. And uh, my contact there at the time said, oh, what happened at, at the wedding expo? I hadn't told her. So clearly there had been some communication between Denver, Commerce City that we were doing something wrong, which we weren't. So marketing, alcohol, it's just the hoops that we have to jump through to get our product in front of people who potentially benefit. And, you know, we, that's just us as a brand. There are also all of these stores that could potentially have new customers, but the barrier entry is so high, you know, to get somebody to go into a dispensary who does not use, who isn't going in with a friend, it's, it's enormous. And they do not have, the dispensaries do not have the same benefit as any other store to be able to drive traffic. And I think, you know, especially for Colorado being, you know, the, the pioneer state that it is, we should be beyond that now. And we're just not, and it's frustrating. And then, you know, I will couple that with social consumption laws and, and consumption lounges. And I just feel like everything has taken so long to sort of just like eke by and we haven't really gotten it right and it can be frustrating because it has been a long time yeah so that kind of leads me to my next point around like okay so you're here now you're in Colorado how is the business doing today in Colorado because like from what I see like the product is flying off the shelves so we are doing really well right now. Uh, we're on an upswing. The market is down. So as a brand, we feel safe enough in Colorado. And we feel like we have the right product suite to hold our own in Colorado. Part of that is this past winter, we launched a value gummy brand. So back in 2016, we have the original incarnation of the Ripple Powders. We end up going into ready to drink, or we end up going into instant coffees. Uh, we pull back on the tea and coffee line. We go into gummies. We uh, also ended up making another form of the powder. So not flavorless dissolvable, a flavored dissolvable powder akin to a pixie stick, because we had a long running co uh, consumer survey that showed that the majority of our customers were either pouring the ripple into a shot glass of water or pouring it directly on their tongues. Oh so we wanted to create a better experience for that. Like clearly you're looking for a quick mechanism, quick way to get the product. We can make that taste really good. So that was our quick stick product. And the gummies, we just, it's sort of twofold. Gummies are the largest share of the edibles market here in Colorado. And nationwide. So we wanted to be able to play in that space, but we wanted to have a reason to play in that space as well. Our reason was we had created this water-soluble form of THC that turns out what had a faster uptake and was absorbed quicker than the standard fat-soluble forms of THC. So we realized we could create a fast-acting gummy with this technology that we had created for our dissolvable powders. So the reason for our gummies to exist was that they were fast acting. And at the time, that was not a claim that other gummies carried. So going back to our budget gummy, uh, we have seen the market sort of drop out a bit here in Colorado. 
you know, majorly. we have both in <laughs> majorly both inflation in like forever impending recession and somewhat of a mature market where there were these players in COVID times who saw what was happening to the industry. You know, there was, it was the spike. They started getting set up back 2020, 2021. It get, takes a year, two years to get set up. There's now there's this overabundance of flour in the market and people searching for what to do with it. And that's driving the price down. And we have budget consumers who are getting pinched everywhere. And, you know, they still consider cannabis a necessity, but they're not going to go in and pay $20, $40, $60 for product. So we have been trying to build out a suite of products that can meet the consumer where they are and that can help dispensaries, similar to the alcohol model, build that good, better, best. No matter who comes into the store, you can have a product available for them. And as a brand, we want to be able to provide you with those products, products that you know are reliable that you know can you can get at any price point and still have a quality product. And that is going, it seems like, to your point, that's going very, that has been received very well. So do you think that you'll take this to other markets or based on your experience in Michigan, you're like, we're going to be a Colorado company or is it still secret and you can't share on the podcast yet? So I would say silver lining of what happened in Michigan was that it forced our team to focus back on Colorado. And we had taken our eye off the ball for years because of both the CBD company and then launching in Michigan. It just pulled our attention elsewhere. So we were forced to take time to reinvest ourselves in the Colorado market, get back out to events, start talking to people again. We did a bunch of focus groups with bud tenders to understand what they liked about our products, what they didn't like about our products, what they liked about other products. And we went through our own internal rebrand to better acclimate our product set for the current landscape of the Colorado market. And I think that was sort of the tipping point for us where we had a legacy product that was well loved by a lot of people, but we weren't cool anymore for lack of a better term. It was just sort of, if you knew, you knew, but it wasn't the latest and greatest. And we wanted to be able to show up in the market in a way that made sense for the time. So with all of these focus groups with our bud tenders and with this rebrand, we were able to regain a bit of that sort of OG status. And you know, it's funny you say that because we're kind of in the same, we kind of did like what everyone else does that raises money, went and expanded very quickly you know, and, and we were always a Colorado company. And at some point I is a combination of COVID and expansion. You know, we used to do two career fairs a year where you guys would come and set up a booth and bud tenders would come up and talk to you about not only jobs, but your product. And like, at some point we just like stopped doing that. So we're doing our next one in August. You guys definitely should come. And it's just like getting back to that core focus. And like, I think it is a blessing. And at least for us, I don't know if you feel this way, like a blessing in disguise to be able to refocus, recenter, and then figure out expansion from there. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't feel like it 
when you're initially in it. But looking back, absolutely, that focus was totally necessary for us to be in the position that we are in now. And we are in talks with a group uh, to bring our products out first to Oklahoma. And they were just out training this past week. So all signs point to moving forward. But That'll be great. It, it will. You know, I, I am hesitant and I will be until the product is doing well there because I, I know that it can and I've seen what that market can do. It's just so hard to not have your hands on it, especially you would understand, you know, being so close to it and having such a small team early on, giving up that control can be so hard, especially when you feel like there is something unique about what you do or that has your fingerprint on it. And you want somebody else to treat it with the same respect and diligence that you would. And I do believe we found the right group, but it is still terrifying. It's terrifying. And at the end of the day, like, at least in my experience, like, just like something about the way you do it. It's just like, even if you find the best person ever, like it's still not you. And that's actually for me as an entrepreneur, the piece that I've struggled with the most of being able to be like, okay, this person can do it 90%, right? I got to be okay with that. Or like trying to find somebody that can do it 110%. But to your point, it's just like so hard to, and like in those folks defense, I mean, like they weren't the ones that were there in 2016 with you in the early days. And like, why would they care as much as you would? And like, that's a realization for me as a founder that I've had to go, come to of like, nobody is going to care as much about this as me because nobody has as big of an upside as I do or as much like personal connection. So like, I'm curious, I always ask other founders, like how you've mentally dealt with that. It's been a process. I mean, you know, in the early days, we all were doing everything. And I think it wasn't really until one of the things that I would say really helped me was when I had my second child, I had to step back at least for a couple of weeks. And when you take those moments to step back and realize that the wheels are still turning and things are still happening, that was helpful for me. And then also at one point we got so big that I just couldn't touch everything. And it was really, it was both a breaking point and a big learning moment for me that I had to let some things go. And I think at least in that moment, I let too much go and that I just sort of made a clean break and said, okay, this is my focus now and nothing else matters because there are other people who are on that. And I lost touch with some aspects of the business, some of the people, some of the components of the brand because I did that. And so now I just recognize, or I at least have come to terms with the fact that the people who we hire to support this business, they have a specialty. They have things that they can do that I cannot do, that they can do better than I can. And even if I would have done it differently, it doesn't mean that the way that they're doing it doesn't ultimately have as good or even better a result at the end of the day. So I have to do a lot of work 
giving up my vision for what a thing is supposed to be to, you know, dotted I's and cross T's and leave space for somebody else's version of it. That's a great piece of feedback. And I'm actually going to try to incorporate that a little bit in, into my day-to-day. Well, well, we're coming up on the time here, but my, my last question for you is, so you've been in the space since 2014, 2015 full-time, about the same amount that I have. Like, what do you do to like keep the optimism and the hope and like keep charging forward? Because to be real, it's been a hard kind of time. Anyone listening that's in the industry would know that. So I always ask people like, what do you do for yourself so that you can show up being the best version of yourself and not let the stress and the uncertainty and all the components just like totally drain you and wear you out? Like, what do you do for Missy so that you can show up and give it your all, even though the external circumstances are ridiculously hard? Oh, I watch a lot of my programs, my television. Uh, my husband and I, we have sort of our ritual. The kids go to the bed, go to bed, go to the bed. My kids go to bed and we have whatever series we are watching at the time. And that's sort of our time to decompress. I think having young kids is super useful because they demand attention and weekends tend to be devoted to activities and friends. And I also would say I'm of the cult of Peloton. I have to move my body in the morning or else I'm dragging throughout the day. I, there's just so much pent up, pent up angst that I need to get it out. Uh, and then also, you know, it's not really a thing that I do for me, but a thing that has helped tremendously throughout the years is that I wholeheartedly believe in the products that we make and I love them to their core. And I don't want to see a world in which they do not exist. You know, I want them to live on in whatever way they can. So, you know, whatever that means for us as a business, as long as the product gets to survive and it, it, it comes through unscathed, then that's a win for me because I do think that it is something that deserves a place out in the world. Well, Missy, thank you so much for doing this episode today. If, if people want to find your product, how can they figure out where to locate your product and, and where to go pick it up? Because I think everybody listening definitely needs to go try out some of the Ripple products. Well, thanks, Carson. We are tryripple.com and you can click on the right button there, our store locator, and it will show you all of the products and where to find them. Amazing, everybody. Well, thanks again for tuning in. And Missy, thank you for your time today. It was great to see you. And we actually need to go do our in-person meet and greet now that we've done a podcast. Thank you, Carson. Absolutely. We'll get on it. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode. 
through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.